Greetings and welcome back to the Kogo Pod. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's talk is an effort to offer some considerations for you as you commence your inquiries into the politics of the Federal Republic of Nigeria. To put it another way, the hope here is to set the table, to give you sort of the lay of the land, so that as you begin to think seriously about Nigerian political culture, Nigerian history, Nigerian politics, you have a framework to understand the complexities of this diverse nation state. So let's dive in right here, right now. Nigeria is a post-colonial, post-dictatorial, young African megastate of 200 million and growing. The population of Nigeria has doubled since 2005, and the population is projected to be 400 million people by 2050. So Nigeria is a big, populous, growing state. Nigeria is wicked important. Nigeria is the fulcrum of West Africa, and in many ways, the hopes for democracy in Africa are pinned on the experiment of democracy in Nigeria. One reason for hope and perhaps some reason for fear in Nigeria, is that about 45% of the population is under the age of 15. So that is a burden, it's a responsibility, but it's also an opportunity. To put that into comparative context, as is my want, the population of under 15-year-olds in the United Kingdom is 15%, China 18%, Russia 18%, and again, Nigeria 45%. So there's no doubt that Nigeria is going to change substantially in the years and decades to come. And what we want to begin to do is to think about ways in which Nigeria can change for the better. The ways in which it is structurally or culturally predisposed towards changing for the better. And we also have to look out for obstacles to positive growth and development. This booming population is booming primarily in the cities. The urbanization processes in Nigeria have been a marvel. Currently, about half of Nigerians live in urban environments, and that's growing substantially. Lagos is a megacity of nine, nine and a half million people. And so there's hope in urbanization. There's hope in modernity. And there's hope in diversity. The Hausa, Fulani, Igbo, and Yoruba populations together comprise about 68% of the Nigerian population. And then there are some 250 other ethnic groups that comprise the other 32%. There are about 500 languages that are spoken actively in Nigeria. So we are talking about an almost unimaginably diverse country. And if you know me, you know that I find great beauty in that. I find that diversity is a source of strength, but I'm no fool. And I recognize that diversity can put a strain on a system when it's not managed well, when leadership is unreliable. And it is surely the case that hope alone makes not for peace, and it makes not for stability. 
These ethno-religious and geographical cleavages have divided people in West Africa for centuries, and the age of imperialism exacerbated these tensions. In my fair city of Berlin in 1884, the Western European powers came together and literally conspired to take over the African continent. They divided and they conquered. The Aruban nationalist Obafemi Awolowo described Nigeria as, quote, a mere geographical expression, which is to say there is no Nigeria. Awolowo is a Yoruban. He sees no Nigeria. And one of the things that you have to grapple with as you begin to grapple with Nigeria is the complexity of ethno-religious strife. And to do that, you do have to begin with the most basic question. Is Nigeria indeed merely a geographical expression? Because tempted as you may be to agree with Awolowo, there are a lot of people who live in Nigeria who are proud to be Nigerian, and they identify as Nigerian more so than they identify as African, more so than they identify as Yoruban or Igbo or Hausa. They identify as Nigerian. They are proud of their country the way that Americans may be proud of theirs or Germans may be proud of theirs or British people may be proud of theirs. So take that notion of Nigeria as a mere geographical expression with, at the very least, a grain of salt. But take it and do something with it. Perhaps this Yoruban nationalist is embittered, and rightfully so, at the legacy of British indirect rule. Look, if India was the jewel in the crown of the British Empire... West Africa was the bastard child of British imperialism. That's me paraphrasing Karl Meyer in his book, The House Has Fallen, where he details the complete and utter mismanagement of Nigeria by the British crown. The British conspired quite consciously to divide and conquer Nigeria. You had massive northern emirates, small kingdoms and village republics in the south and the middle belt. And the goal was to divide them, to create a culture of distrust among them. And the legacy of that British success of driving wedges between already divided peoples is essential to understanding Nigerian politics today. You have a north-south divide. You have a Christian-Muslim divide, which loosely mirrors that. You have fundamentalist, charismatic religious expressions in the Christian communities and the Muslim communities and the animist communities. You have fascinating and in many ways dark expressions of Sharia law in the north. And you have Boko Haram, which we will dive further into in a later lecture. So you have really substantial cumulative cleavages that exist in Nigeria. It is by far the most divided country that we have in the comparative government six. And these cumulative cleavages are fueled by corruption. Transparency International gives Nigeria a score of 25 out of 100. It is 149 out of 179 countries studied, and it's definitely like the biggest country in the bottom quartile. 
that data is to suggest that corruption in Nigeria is endemic. It's everywhere you look. And that corruption is fueled by the curse of black gold. Nigeria is a top 10 oil producer. Nigeria is a rentier state. And in an effort to divide the so-called national cake, tensions run high between regions, and the regions, again, are divided by ethnicity, religion, nationality. Nigerian corruption poisons the well of politics on a daily basis. Nigerians interface with conspicuous corruption each and every day of their lives. Nigerians know that Nigeria should be a rich country, but Nigeria is a poor country. And the people who are responsible for curtailing corruption are some of the most corrupt people in Nigeria. We're talking about politicians, we're talking about judges, we're talking about law enforcement officials. We will dive into the NSARS campaign in a later lecture, but this is this movement to obliterate this special anti-robbery squad, this SARS squad, which is a police unit, which itself needs to be policed because it is terrorizing Nigerian men and raping Nigerian women. Again, these are the police I'm talking about. So there are a number of countries that suffer from endemic corruption among the AP6. Russia is wicked corrupt. Mexico is wicked corrupt. China. But Nigeria takes the cake as hands down the most corrupt country we have the pleasure to study. <laughs> and this corruption is the cause of profound economic distress. According to the Nigerian government, 40% of its people live in poverty. The World Bank argues that about 50% of Nigerians live in poverty of under $2 a day. Children in Nigeria, as is the case for children around the world, are most vulnerable to the pains of poverty. Women are most vulnerable to the pains of poverty. Nigeria is rich with oil, and it's rich with human capital, but Nigerian people are impoverished. Half of them live in poverty. Nigeria ranks 152 out of 157 countries on the World Bank's Human Capital Index. Despite the World Bank Structural Adjustment Programs, a la Mexico, a la Russia, Nigeria remains poor. Despite having the third best education system in Africa, behind Egypt, behind South Africa, Nigeria remains poor. Despite having one of the strongest militaries in Africa, the fifth strongest in Africa out of 54 countries, Nigeria remains poor. Nigeria remains poor in part because of its patriarchy. The so-called dual-sex system in Nigeria stymies the potential for economic growth. When half the country lives in servitude because of dumb, dogmatic patriarchy, it's hard to lift a country out of poverty. So the economic distress in Nigeria is very, very real. 
and it's very unnecessary given the resources that Nigeria has. You have a young, engaged population. You have tons of oil. You have very positive relationships with most neighbors. You have a great relationship with the United States. There's a lot of room for growth. But generation after generation of Nigerian leadership squanders that growth. And so as you begin to think seriously about Nigeria, you start to think about how and why that is. And of course, that Leninist question, right? What is to be done? Well, there are a lot of Nigerian people who have ideas about what is to be done. Nigeria has a healthy civil society and a robust media. The media landscape in Nigeria is fascinating. According to Freedom House, Nigeria is partially free. They have a score of 50 out of 100, political rights 25 out of 40, civil liberties 25 out of 60. It is freer in the South than it is in the North. But Nigeria ranks reasonably high on media freedom. The microblogosphere is live and well. Nollywood, Hollywood, Bollywood, Nollywood, Nollywood is churning out amazing movies. There's an awesome Nigerian music scene. People speaking freely in poetry, in prose, in music, film, on the airwaves, newscasters criticizing the government openly. Nigerian people take to the streets, still suffused with the energy of being part of the Fourth Republic, the new democracy born in 1999. Nigerian people have expectations of their government. They have criticism. They have anger. They have concerns. They have demands. But they have expectations and they have hopes. And I'll give a lecture very soon here about civil society in Nigeria. It's so rich. It's so robust. It's so exciting. So the Nigerian people as individuals and as actors in civil society organizations, they demand a lot from their government. This government is but 20 years old. The Fourth Republic was established in 1999 after a couple aborted attempts at democracy since independence in 1960. And the political system is, in many ways, simple, at least to the eyes of the average American or student of American politics. For the Nigerian constitution was modeled on the U.S. constitution, not unlike Mexico. But history and political culture in Nigeria might not be conducive to the success of this federalist presidential system of the Fourth Republic. One thing that's worth thinking about as you begin to study the structures and functions of the Nigerian government is whether the federalist system, this sort of hyper-federalist system, is misguided. Perhaps Nigeria should be more centralized to promote nationalism and unity and to create some sort of territorial justice, as they call it in the United Kingdom. Perhaps you believe the opposite. Perhaps you believe the hyper-presidential system in Nigeria takes too many powers away from the 36 states. What is the status 
of the balance of power between the states and the national government right now. We'll take a look at that. What's the status of the presidency relative to the legislative and judicial branches right now? I mean, surely it's the case that the president is the ogre among ogres, the boss of the bosses, the patron of patrons. And despite common law across the country and Sharia law predominantly in the North, the president's above the law. And part of the reason that the president seems to be above the law is because Nigeria does not have centralized, disciplined, programmatic political parties. The current political parties, and they've evolved rather substantially over the 20 years of the Fourth Republic, the PDP and the APC, they're, they're fluid and they're accommodating. They don't have much of a clear vision. Both parties basically say the same thing, right? We're going to get the other crooks out of office. We're going to end corruption. We're going to end poverty. But they don't have clear programs. They don't have disciplined party platforms. And so you see parties sort of rise and fall, morph, meld, disassemble, though the PDP is the exception to this. The People's Democratic Party of Nigeria uh, has withstood the weather of the Fourth Republic hitherto. But it's been stormy weather, and Nigerian people have had to come to somehow get used to living in a political climate that allows for coups and counter-coups and civil wars and the constant threat of secessionism. And the poverty and the economic distress and the environmental devastation and the ethno-religious and geographical cleavages, when you add all of those things up, you find that people in Nigeria are losing faith in their democracy. Nigeria is 60 years old. Civilian rule, what we sometimes call democracy in Nigeria, it might be worth maybe delineating between civilian rule and democracy. But civilian rule and what Nigerians call democracy is only 20 years old. And it's been riddled with fraud and corruption and mismanagement and the hopes for democracy in Nigeria are very much pinned to economic performance. And you'll see in the forthcoming lecture that suffused with the euphoria of the end of military rule, 84% of Nigerians in the year 2000 were thrilled with their democracy. And according to some studies, that number is down to 20%, 25%. This is a study from Afrobarometer. So democracy has not been particularly good to the Nigerian people. I mean, to be clear, nor was military rule. Not so long ago, there was an article in the Atlantic magazine, which was reporting on some discussions that were taking place at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. And the Nigerian Pulitzer Prize-winning newspaper editor, a man called Dele Oloyeda, he was asked about universal suffrage. And he said this, and I'm quoting him here, Hard experience shows that if you have a large number of citizens 
who do not yet fully grasp even the concept of the state, who are largely very poor and uneducated, who struggle daily to survive and are susceptible to a $5 bribe, democracy sometimes seems like a sham. And we have to think about if there are other ways. In a society, some will be more ready than others. I can't think of an example of a reasonably successful democracy that started out with universal franchise. What I haven't figured out yet is what should be the criteria for the franchise. So here's a Nigerian Pulitzer Prize winner. A national treasure, if not a national hero. And he's questioning the very basis of hope for democracy in the Nigerian context. Now, I don't know exactly what you want to do with that notion. It is indeed a hard one to swallow. But it's certainly a notion that we should put on the table while we are setting it to study Nigeria. Another Nigerian journalist called Sully Abu said in an interview with Karl Meyer, Nigeria is like being on an airplane that's just been taken over by hijackers. You don't want to compromise with the gunman, but the prime concern is to land the plane. So there's no choice but to give in. End quote. To give in to the corruption, to give in to the mismanagement, to give in to the poor leadership, to pay the bribes, to hang your head and suffer from the injustice and hope that tomorrow is better. I hope he's not right. But I understand where he's coming from. The Nigerian airplane has been hijacked. It was hijacked by the British. Ensuingly, it was hijacked by successive Nigerian governments. And the Nigerian people have not yet had the luxury of determining the fate of their country. You know, Nigeria went from being the so-called sick man of Africa, where, quote-unquote, things fall apart, to Africa's great hope, and perhaps back again. I will tell you that when I began to teach this course, so many of the articles I read were suffused with hopes for Nigeria. And I, too, came to develop hope for Nigeria. And I still have hope for Nigeria. For without hope, what do we have, really? But the obstacles that Nigeria face, environmental, economic, ethical, they're very real. And so what we need to begin to do in thinking about Nigeria is perhaps first to determine the degree to which we're willing to be hopeful and then from there to think about given the political history given the political culture and given the political structures how can Nigeria begin to pivot towards a more just and sustainable future for its 200 million citizens 45% of whom under 15 years old 
And with the table set as such, I wish you all health and wellness. And I hope you look forward to the next talk.